Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Generation Y ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, and social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store, for accepting payments to manage inventory. It has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one true source. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash geny, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash geny to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash geny. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, Audible. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. You got bestsellers, new releases, and mysteries and thrillers. I'm currently listening to A Rip in Heaven by Janine Cummings. It's a true story that happened in April 1991 about some teenagers, family members that were violently attacked. Two would perish, and the one surviving one would end up being accused of the crime. But the reality of what happened is much worse. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash GWP or text GWP to 500-500. That's audible.com slash GWP or text GWP to How are you doing tonight, Aaron? I'm doing really well, Justin, but how are you? I'm doing good. We have a Patreon, tons of extra content, tons of off-the-cuff commentary, and can cover other cases that won't you know, fill up a whole hour time slot. Plus, if uh, you like hearing from Justin and Aaron, sometimes we cover things that we wouldn't normally cover on Generation Y. There is so much out on our Patreon that you guys are missing out on. You should go check it out patreon.com slash generation y so aaron um tonight's case is one that i picked out it really struck a chord with me you know we all take uber or lyft you know whenever i'm traveling in a city i'm I'm always using one of these rideshare apps when you are essentially trusting a stranger and you're getting in their car most of the time there's not a lot of security there's not a lot of uh, safety catches there. So it's a lot of trust. And you know that you have the app, it's called this person. Hopefully this person shows up and is going to ask you, are you Aaron? Are you Justin? And then you say yes. And then you know that you're getting into the right car. I know a lot of cases we cover, Aaron, the investigations are messed up. The trial doesn't go the way we expect it to. There's always something about it. And sometimes that gives people the impression that we're 
maybe anti-law enforcement or we hate prosecutors or we think defense attorneys don't do their job, whatever it is. But uh, tonight's case is not one of those examples. So with that, what are we talking about tonight? Well, and before I get to that, if anyone's married or has been in a relationship for a while, your significant other will criticize you at times. It doesn't mean they hate you. (laughs) They may just be trying to correct something that needs correcting. Tonight, we're talking about the March 29th, 2019 murder of Samantha Josephson in Columbia, South Carolina. Let's start with who Samantha Josephson is. She was born August 13th, 1997, and she has parents Seymour and Marcy Josephson, as well as a sister named Sydney. She grew up in Robbinsville, New Jersey, and was a student at University of South Carolina and was planning to graduate in June of 2019. Her dream was to attend Drexel University School of Law. She had earned a full scholarship, as well as a partial scholarship to Rutgers University. She was wanting to get into international law. Now, the reason for that was because she loved to travel. And while she was at the University of South Carolina, she had studied abroad in Barcelona. And while on that visit, she got to go into Madrid and Paris, and she absolutely loved it. So you can understand her dream is to be international. She wants to go all over the place. She wants to get into law. She's got a full ride scholarship. This is pretty impressive stuff. So she's going to go celebrate with her friends this acceptance to the law school. This is kind of her night. She's going out with her friends. It's the evening of March 28th. She's in this area called the Five Points, which is like a you know trendy bar area where everyone goes. And she's at a bar called Bird Dog Bar. And it's around 1240 at night. And she's kind of like, I'm, I'm done. I got to get up and go to work in the morning. I'm not going to be hanging out and drinking all night because I got stuff to do. And she's texting with her boyfriend. Greg Corbishley, and she asked Greg to come to Columbia because he actually lives far away. Like they have a long distance relationship. And Greg said no, because they're going to be seeing each other uh, when Samantha came to Charleston in two days. So she's texting with them. You know, it's close to one in the morning. So it's at 2 a.m. She's planning to head back to her apartment. And her apartment is about a mile and a half away from Five Points. And depending on traffic in the area, because again, this is a very hopping place. There's always cars, there's always traffic. And at 2 a.m., things are still going, but people are starting to head home. So you have all kinds of people coming and going. So she calls Uber. Because this is like a huge, it's called Five Points because it's a big roundabout kind of messed up intersection of all of these uh, bars and stuff. It's not, (laughs) I mean, it's not easy to drive around this area. Just watching some of the security camera footage of it, it's just like, yeah, that's the place I avoid. (laughs) I don't go to those kind of places. Or if I do, I would actually walk two blocks away and call my Uber because I wouldn't want to bother the driver with even trying to drive into this area because it's just gridlocked and there's this there's a hundred ways to get lost in this area. Yeah, but I could understand why this young lady wouldn't want to walk away from this area to get a ride. So 
she's standing on a corner. Her Uber driver is trying to get there. But because if you come into the area going the wrong direction, it's kind of hard to make a U-turn. It's, it's hard to get back around to a corner that somebody's on. And apparently, this Uber driver can't find Samantha. So, he'll end up canceling the ride. But Samantha doesn't realize that. So, she's looking at every single car that's driving by that's a dark colored sedan because you get to see that on your Uber app, you know, what kind of car it is. And nowadays, you get to see their license plate number and usually sometimes a picture of the driver too. But it's two in the morning. She's probably had a few drinks. She's not wasted though. And she just wants to get home. So, this black sedan rolls up and she walks towards it with her phone out and she says, essentially, are you here for Samantha? And the driver says, yes. And she gets in the car. And that's the last time anyone sees Samantha alive. The car was a black Chevy Impala and it was pulled into the parking lot of the bird dog and surveillance footage has it going by a couple times and has Samantha walking up to it and getting inside. Samantha's boyfriend, he knew kind of where she was because they had shared their locations with each other using the Find My Friends app on their, on their phones. And Samantha told him that she was getting in an Uber. And so he was just tracking to make sure she made it back safely. But when he was checking, it looked like the phone was moving in the opposite direction of where her apartment would be. And this is very concerning. So while Samantha is heading the wrong way, Greg calls and texts her, but she's not answering. And he ends up going to bed thinking she probably just left her phone in the car or the GPS is messing up. Something's going on, but she's got to be okay. So he just talked to her later in the morning. And then when he gets up, he finds that he has several missed calls from his girlfriend's friends and roommates, Samantha's friends. And he's, he calls them back and they're saying, Samantha didn't go home. She's not in her room. She didn't go to work. Less than eight hours later, people are sounding the alarm bell saying something happened and they're calling around trying to figure out where she's at and they start going out and searching for her. They also call Samantha's parents and they're going to make their way to South Carolina because uh, they live in New Jersey. And they immediately know there's something wrong here too. Samantha's roommate checked out the computer and saw where Samantha's Uber ride had been canceled because they never saw her. They didn't find her, so they canceled the ride. My initial thought here, Aaron, was the Uber driver canceled the ride and then found her and then took off with her. But as we'll find out, that's not exactly what happened. And I'm not sure that works because if you cancel the ride, then I don't think you can take that ride anymore because it's not through the app and I don't know how they would get paid. So I, I just assumed that he canceled the ride because he had nefarious uh, plans, but that Uber driver canceled the ride because he couldn't find her. He couldn't get to her and he went and got another ride, You know, picked up another person and continued on his night. So the person driving this Impala was not working for Uber, had nothing to do with the rideshare, 
and was just somebody that was driving around the Five Points area all night looking for a victim. Greg and Samantha's friends, they go to the last place her phone had tracked to. They're looking around. They're knocking on doors. They're not getting any information. Then they go to the bird dog, that bar where Samantha had been. They ask about surveillance footage. And the bar owner is very helpful. He says, sure, I'll, I'll pull it up. And they find footage of Samantha inside the bar. And the owner is going through the footage with them and shows them Samantha outside waiting on her ride share. And then they all see Samantha get into this black Chevy Impala. But they know now that her Uber ride had been canceled. So they all know that she's getting into the wrong car. So they end up calling the police. The police are taking this very seriously because they're getting all of the facts here. This isn't a situation where, oh yeah, well, maybe she just took off. Maybe she just left. It was like, no, she was planning on going home and she got into the wrong car and now she's missing. So it's the next day at 3.45 PM that law enforcement gets a call from two turkey hunters who find a female body in New Zion. This is a secluded wooded area, and it's off a dirt road that's about 70 miles from where Samantha went missing at Five Points. It was a private property, and she was found 40 feet from a dirt road. It's, it's very rural out here. There's nothing out here. And they say that to know about this road, you'd have to be from the area. You'd have to know about it. You wouldn't just stumble upon it. So Samantha's parents, they head to South Carolina from New Jersey and talk to the police. And they asked, can we see her bank account to see if her card's been used? And Samantha's parents give the okay. They want to know what's going on. They find that the card had been used at an ATM about 43 miles outside of Columbia. No money was withdrawn because whoever it was couldn't complete the transaction. So police got a warrant for surveillance footage from the bank and they see a suspect. It's a male dressed in dark clothing, gloves, and had a bandana covering his face. He also had a hoodie drawn tight around his head. Yeah. And it's ridiculous because he's using one hand to hold on to the strings of the hoodie while he's trying to manipulate the ATM. And it's obvious he's trying to obscure his, his identity. This all went down around midnight when Samantha's parents were interacting with the police at the police station. And it's while they're there, they discover there is a body found. Samantha's friends and family, they tell the police officers what she was wearing they tell them that she had like a pink uh, key ring for her car keys and whatnot, and a pink iPhone cover. So they know what she's wearing. They know what general items she had. And those items aren't found with this body. So this is a link where they can still track her down, track down some of her things. And if they find her cell phone, then they know whoever has her cell phone is probably the perpetrator of this crime. You know, they put a bolo out for this vehicle, this black Impala, and Officer Kraft is starting his patrol. He's watched this video footage of Samantha getting into this car probably 15 times before he starts his, his shift. And he just starts driving around the Five Points area, and he's just going around 
And lo and behold, he comes across a black Impala that matches the description and looks like the car in the video. So he pulls the vehicle over and there's a man driving and a woman in the passenger seat. He smells marijuana. He says, sir, you need to step out of the car. He asked the driver for his driver's license and the driver claimed that he didn't have a license on him. So he then asked the driver to step out of the car and this person gets out. He has a hand in his pocket. And of course the police are like, take your hand out of your pocket, man. Like you're, what are you doing? And at that point, the driver turns and just takes off running. So officer Kraft and uh, another officer give pursuit, but this guy is running so fast that officer Kraft says, you know what? I'm going to let you guys keep chasing him. I need to get back to that vehicle because I believe this vehicle has something to do with the abduction of Samantha. And there's a woman in the vehicle. I don't want her to take off on the car. I don't want her to do anything. So he runs back to the vehicle and they begin to question the woman that was present. And they notice that there's blood all over the back seat. There's a white sheet that was kind of used to sort of cover the seats, you know, to cover up the blood. They find a key ring that has some pink stuff on it, and they find a rose gold iPhone. And this officer knows that those match the description of Samantha's. And Aaron, at this time, it's now March 31st at around 3 a.m., they're asking the woman in the car, are these your keys? Is this your iPhone? And she's saying no. They're asking her, who is that guy that just ran? She says, that's Nate. So now they have a name because remember, he wasn't going to hand over his ID or give any kind of identification. So of course, they're going to impound this car and process it. And the canine units will eventually catch up to this driver of the vehicle and apprehend him. Initially, he will act very, I guess, I don't know. He acts like he's dizzy and he claims he has the flu or something. So they they call EMS, but EMS is like, the guy's fine. Take him to the station. Uh, so they end up taking him to the station where he is very uncooperative. But what he says or does doesn't really matter at this point because they have some evidence that's been found in his vehicle that seems to suggest he might be the person they were looking for. He was driving a black Impala. There's blood in this vehicle and some items that appear to belong to Samantha Josephson. When they do ask him, where were you last night? Essentially the the 29th. He says he wasn't close to the five points area. He says that he was out at uh, a house party, but he doesn't have any location for this house party. He doesn't have anybody that can give him any sort of alibi. You know, he doesn't give any name of anyone he was with the night of the disappearance. Well, they can also talk to the woman that he was with. Her name's Maria Howard, and she gives them information on the dates in question. She said on the 28th, Nathaniel Rowland picked her up from work, and they went back to her house and chatted for a bit, and she fell asleep around 1.30 in the morning. This is early on the 29th. Maria said she got up early because she had to be at work at 7 a.m., but Roland wasn't there. He returned home before 8 a.m., about 7.45 to 8 a.m. 
Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, Simply Safe. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the day goes longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security system I use and recommend. Both experts and customers love Simply Safe for its comprehensive protection. It was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. Its advanced technology protects every home, window, and door, while cameras keep watch for suspicious activities 24-7. There's no long-term contract. You'll get the emergency response you need at half the cost of traditional home security at less than a dollar a day. You install the system your way. It's easy to do it yourself. I did mine. It was about 20, 25 minutes from start to finish. But if you're not comfortable with that, you can have the professionals do it. Protect your home today. Generation Y listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system. When you sign up for fast protect monitoring, just visit simplysafe.com slash gen y. That's simplysafe.com slash gen y. There's no safe like Simply Safe. But things are moving quickly because on March 31st, Nathaniel Rowland was charged with kidnapping and murder in the death of Samantha Josephson. Yeah. Police have moved on this case. Officer Kraft just went back to essentially the scene of the crime and drove around until he saw a car matching the description. They had all of the security footage. They now have her phone, so they're able to go in and track all of her locations for the night. This is everything we want to see, right, in an investigation. This is perfect. It's definitely interesting that this officer, Jeffrey Kraft, went back to, like you said, the scene of where Samantha was taken, and this is what ended up working. I think that's amazing that law enforcement was able to move this quickly, apprehend the suspect, and find evidence that fast. So now they're gathering all of the security footage. They're gathering the GPS locations of Nathaniel's phone and Samantha's phone, and they're building a case. And there's a hearing on April 1st, which Nathaniel Roland is not present for, but Samantha's family is there. And her mother read a statement. It's, it's full of anguish, pain, love. Uh, it's really heart-wrenching. And uh, she just goes on to describe how much pain that this person's actions have caused their family and friends, and that he'd taken away a piece of their heart, soul, and life. So the main thing, though, the family is hoping for is that the court will deny bail or the posting of a bond. They want this individual held for trial. But it's not just the police who acted quickly. There's a House representative named Seth Bross who introduced the Samantha L. Josephson Ridesharing Act. And this bill would require all ride-sharing drivers to display an illuminated sign on their vehicles when in service. So when you walk up to them, you don't have to just look at the type of vehicle or try to match the face to the one on your phone. You can actually see, for one, that they're a ride-share vehicle. So that helps. The measure would also require drivers to turn in the sign if they stop working for the company. If they don't have a sign, then they would have to sign an affidavit to explain why. This is just a way to make ride-sharing safer. Because like you said, there weren't too many safety measures with ride-sharing before. You had to do all the work yourself. You had to match a face. You had to match a license plate, the type of car. And this would make it easier for people who are just walking up at 2 in the morning after hanging out at a bar. Samantha's funeral service was April 3rd. WACH-TV 75 interviewed 
Nathaniel Rowland's parents. They are Henry and Loretta Rowland, and they maintained that their son was innocent. Henry said, he's a good kid. Ain't no way in the world he could do this. My heart goes out to a family that lost a life. I feel so bad, but my son didn't do it. He did not do this thing. And his mother maintained that Nathaniel had passed out at a party when Samantha was abducted, so he couldn't have done it, and that the truth will come to light. Uh, I mean, this is Samantha's funeral, and I I understand the news wants to give everyone their say, but I I just think it's a a bad look for them to talk to his parents at this point. That's the way I felt about it. I know you might say, well, he's innocent until proven guilty. So, of course, let him have a say. But either way, I don't care if it was good intentions or not. It is a bad look to interview the parents on the day of Samantha's funeral service. So, as we know, Nathaniel was with Maria Howard at her house. So, they get search warrants for both, you know, the car and Maria's house. And there they find a sheet with blood on it a napkin with blood on it, a white grocery bag with blood on it, a yellow grocery bag with blood on it, a white grocery bag with vinyl gloves and paper towels with blood, a multi-tool or essentially a a knife with blood on it, a roll of duct tape, obviously blood on it, bleach wipes, a pillowcase on Maria's bed with blood on it, children's shoes with blood on them, more grocery bags with cleaning supplies inside, dark colored pants and a dark colored Nike sweatshirt and two bank receipts. Now, most of these items were found in trash bags out front and the trash people were actually going to be picking this stuff up, Aaron, but there was an eviction notice that the landlord or property management had placed on top of the trash bags. So, the trash people came to collect all of this, but they saw the eviction notice and said, oh, well, we're, we're going to leave this alone because we don't want to mess with that. All of this evidence could have been thrown away. It sounds like a lucky break to me. Yeah. But here we have all of the items and things you would need to clean up a crime scene, a murder scene. We have latex gloves. We have a white sheet. We have all of these things in trash bags to be thrown out. April 9th, Columbia police confirmed that they found what they believed to be the murder weapon. And there was no real information given other than it was a knife-like device and that it matches the wounds Samantha sustained. And we'll get more into what happened with her later, but it has multiple blades on it. Uh, It looks almost like a, a karambit sort of martial arts knife with multiple blades, but it's a multi-tool. That's how they refer to it during trial. June 13th, New Jersey House Representative Chris Smith introduced a bill called Sammy's Law. Sammy is, of course, short for Samantha. That's how many people referred to her. I had mentioned the Samantha L. Josephson Ride-Sharing Safety Act. Well, it went into effect June 17th of 2020. It created new safety requirements for rideshare driver services like Uber and Lyft. Rideshare drivers must now display their vehicle's license plate numbers on the front of their cars. And anyone that pretends to be a rideshare will now be guilty of a misdemeanor and fined up to $500 in prison for 30 days or both. And anybody who knowingly uses a rideshare app to commit a crime 
will be guilty of a misdemeanor and fined up to $1,000 in prison for two years or both. So again, law enforcement acted quickly. And now we have the state acting quickly, saying we're going to make changes to make things safer. These things are common sense. I think when it comes to a rideshare, you would want to identify your drivers. Your drivers would want to be very transparent with their riders. This just makes sense to me. And obviously, when I'm getting into a stranger's car, there's a a level of trust there, but they can do whatever they want with me. And apparently, Nathaniel, his black Impala had child locks on it. So as soon as Samantha got into that vehicle, he hit those child locks and he could drive her wherever he wanted. That's what's frightening here is anyone can just get into a car and they can drive off with you. And on the other side, any rider can get into a car and attack the driver. It's safety both ways here. So these are good laws. I'm just surprised that uh, these things didn't happen without a law. Well, and I'd mentioned Chris Smith introducing a bill called Sammy's Law. Well, he reintroduced it in 2021, February 15th, 2021, because it didn't go through before. And this time he was very emphatic. He said, we need to do something. We need to get ahead of this because one person's already died. And he referenced Samantha Josephson, talked about her case. So with the evidence that they have, obviously they're testing it and they're getting enough evidence back that points to Nathaniel Rowland that he's the guy and the prosecution will be going up against Nathaniel Rowland and a defense team. They select a jury July 19th. That's when they start. So the following day, they settle on a jury made up of four black women, one black man, three Hispanic men, three white women, and one white man. The prosecutor for the state is Byron Gibson. And he starts his opening remarks with, Samantha was supposed to be celebrating her graduation from college that fateful night in five points. Instead, he claimed she didn't realize the defendant had his eyes on her as she walked outside alone to get her Uber. Talked about evidence would show that once Samantha got into Roland's car, she couldn't get out because of the child safety locks. The phones from Samantha and Roland tracked together in the vehicle at the same time, traveling towards New Zion, not towards her apartment. Her body was dumped two miles from Nathaniel's family home. So that's a throwback to you wouldn't know this area. You wouldn't know about this deserted dirt road unless you're from that area. So his family lived two miles away. And he also talked about how someone used Samantha Wells Fargo card. There were nine separate attempts that were unsuccessful. And Roland tried to sell Samantha's phone. His girlfriend, Maria, would testify that she saw Roland with the knife used to kill Samantha. Samantha had been stabbed more than 100 times. What evidence did they have to bring to trial here, Justin? Well, they had Samantha's blood all over the car seats, the ceiling, the doors. Just his car was covered in blood. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, DoorDash. If you're looking to get more from delivery, you can get it with Dash Pass by DoorDash. Plus, you can get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for Dash Pass. Dash Pass is only $9.99 a month. You get special access to exclusive promotions, member-only menu items, and 
With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders. I use it all the time. Sometimes I just can't leave the house. I have too much going on. I got to edit and uh, I'll get my food delivered today. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Use code GENY24. That code again, GENY24. Subject to change, terms apply. Uh, they found some DNA of Samantha's under Roland's fingernails. Samantha's blood was found on Roland's shoe and sock. Also, they have video from Five Points of Roland's car circling the area multiple times. As the prosecutor will put it, like a shark looking for prey. And then they have video showing Roland trying to sell Samantha's cell phone at a local store. And of course, they're going to have that owner of the store testify who walked in to sell that phone. Samantha's phone and Roland's phone pinged off all of the same towers. They were right next to each other up until about 2.15 a.m. They also have gloves from Maria's trash can with DNA from Samantha and Roland on them. Now, they have a lot of evidence here, but they also have some evidence that the defense can use to defend their client. They had DNA from hair, from fingernail scrapings of Samantha's that were not Roland's and were actually two other men's DNA. And there was DNA from multiple individuals on the blue plastic gloves found in Roland's car. So you can see already they're going to be able to latch onto that and say, well, who are all these people then? Yeah. So it's up to the state to really tie the key evidence in directly to Nathaniel Roland to make this case work. And they do not have any DNA from Roland found on Samantha's body. Roland also did not have any scratch marks or cuts on himself. When they examined him after the arrest, he didn't have any scratches on his face. He didn't have any cuts from this double-bladed weapon that was used in the crime. So the defense is going to say, hey, how can he stab somebody over 100, 120 times and not cut himself once? How does he not leave any DNA on Samantha, any evidence on Samantha? How could he have done this? And how can he not leave DNA on the murder weapon? Yeah. So you can tell his excuse or his explanation is going to be that he wasn't in the car. He didn't pick her up. He didn't handle his knife, his multi-tool. Someone else must have done this. That's going to be the defense. And Ashley Good, she has the defense's opening remarks, and she talks about this. She talks about how there are zero traces of Roland on Samantha's body. But I would say the state has a pretty good amount of evidence, and one of the other things they bring up is that Samantha's phone pinged twice at Maria's house. Yeah. So we have the defense essentially saying that Nathaniel Roland passed out. Someone took his car, went and abducted Samantha, did this crime, and then dumped her and dumped his car. And then he will wake up in the morning, find his car, and then attempt to clean it up. And that's why he was scared and ran from the officers when they uh, pulled him over. That's in a nutshell what 
the story they're trying to get across. And Maria Howard seems to have been very cooperative because she explains how she and Nathaniel, their relationship was pretty casual. They'd only dated for a few weeks at that time. And she wouldn't say that he was living at the house, but she did give him a key to the home the day after the murder. Also, Greg Corbishley, Samantha's boyfriend, took the stand. They had started dating in 2017, and Greg moved to Charleston, South Carolina after he graduated. They know where he was the night Samantha was abducted. He talked about tracking Samantha's location, hoping she would make it home safely, and the tracking stopped on Montgomery Avenue in Rosewood. He said he tried calling and texting Samantha multiple times, but she never answered. And he said he thought maybe she had left her phone in the Uber. And of course, when he found out she was missing, he drove straight to Columbia. And he's one of the people that looked at the security cameras in Five Points and saw her getting into a black Chevy Impala. Now, they they were able to track down that Uber driver. And uh, he was supposed to pick Samantha up that night. Uh, He testified that when he arrived to pick her up, he didn't see her at the spot she had given on the app. He tried to call her. She didn't answer. He said he drove around for several minutes and then canceled. They have his GPS. They have his cell phone. They have all of those records. And he, he didn't pick her up and he moved on. And he didn't drive a black Chevy Impala, but he did drive a black sedan. There was testimony from the security for Bird Dog. He said he compiled the security footage of outside the bar from the night Samantha disappeared, which was incredibly helpful. I feel like one of the stories from this, Justin, is that a lot of people were very helpful early on. Yeah. And this kind of the key witness here in this entire trial is Maria Howard, his girlfriend. Now, she was hanging out with him the days after the abduction, and she saw the blood in his car. She saw a lot of suspicious things, but she says Roland was acting very combative and hostile towards her, and she was afraid. So, when they ask her, well, when you see blood in his car, why didn't you call the police immediately? And she said, because I was, I was scared. She goes, I have a child. She goes, I didn't know what he was going to do. While she's on the stand, she says that she got into the car. She noticed dried blood on the dashboard and beside the seats and the back. She was actually driving and Nathaniel was in the passenger seat and she witnessed him trying to clean up this blood. She asked him about the blood multiple times and Nathaniel's response was, mind your business. He wouldn't give her any explanation. And uh, she said that he was still wearing the clothes he had on the night before. Now, Roland had taken her to work, dropped her off, uh, but then he didn't come back to pick her up. So Maria had to get a ride home from a coworker. Here we see Roland's pattern of behavior has changed. He's not picking Maria up and he's trying to clean up blood in his car. When Maria finally gets home, she said Roland was cleaning the car with some kind of chemical that smelled like bleach and was using wipes. He kept cleaning the car and he cleaned a small hunting knife. Maria did ask Roland about a phone he was holding and she said it was a rose gold iPhone. 
and it looked like it was in perfect condition. And so she asked him about it and he said he was getting it ready for her. But she thought that was weird because she didn't need a new phone. They also bring up the owner of Cellular City, the store that Nathaniel Rowland tried to sell this phone at. And uh, Mr. Williams, who's the owner, said that uh, he knew Nathaniel. You can see on the video, Nathaniel walks in and gives him a handshake. They're friendly with each other. They talked about this cell phone. He was successful in getting the serial number off of the phone. I mean, I guess it's like Nathaniel's coming in to sell Samantha's cell phone. You know, if you were passed out all night, Aaron, and someone stole your car, and then you wake up in the morning and you find your car covered in blood and there's a cell phone, is the first thing you're going to do is go and try to sell that cell phone? Maybe he's just heartless. I mean, <laughs> I, know, I know how it looks. Trust me. Yeah. It looks like a man who killed a woman is now trying to sell her phone. That's what it looks like. Yeah. There's no other explanation here. Yeah. Williams also talks about how the phone wasn't locked. There was no passcode or password on the phone. And while he was looking at the phone, he recalled seeing a Caucasian woman in a holiday photo on the phone. Now, there's a cross here, Justin, where the defense is asking the store owner about the cameras and whether they're synced to record the same time date. I think this is ridiculous personally because it's the man in question. It's the phone in question. But I guess you have to do what you have to do. Yeah. They're going to get testimony from all of the officers involved who searched for Samantha, who processed the crime scene. They will give testimony about the condition they found Samantha in how she was missing an earring. A lot of this is sort of the, the gory details of what they found. And I know Samantha's family had to leave the courtroom during a lot of this testimony because they didn't want to see pictures from where her body was found or Roland's car. But they do find a large amount of blood in the car and footprints on or near the rear window belonging to Samantha, meaning that she was fighting for her life to get out of this vehicle. They also found a black leather jacket that had what appeared to be fingernail marks on it. Now, this black leather jacket was probably what Nathaniel was wearing the night of. And so, just one more piece of evidence that she was fighting for her life. And then we have video footage from a Wendy's where Nathaniel had gone to the drive-thru. And again, it's Nathaniel driving the car after the abduction, after the murder. And in this security footage, you can see Nathaniel driving his vehicle and you see the white sheet that's put over one of the seats. Now, Maria Howard, she worked at McDonald's and when she had to go to work, she had asked Nathaniel where her visor was, where her hat was. And uh, Nathaniel said, uh, it's gone. It had blood on it. And well, the investigators will end up finding a black McDonald's visor with blood on it. So that's a lot of evidence there, Aaron. That is tons of corroborating evidence. That's tons of DNA evidence placing Samantha in the vehicle and showing Nathaniel's behaviors 
after the abduction. That's true. But if the jury sees this as, well, there's all this evidence connecting Samantha, the crime that happened to her, and Nathaniel's car, that could be difficult if they say, well, where's the connection between the two of them? Yeah. Because so far, like he was saying, that he had fallen asleep, someone must have stolen his car. He seems not to care about the blood that was found, although he wants to sell the cell phone. And he's willing to throw things out. So we can all do the math. But again, there are people that are pretty, uh, pretty tough on this and they want more. And he does have clothing with blood on it. But if his explanation is, I was cleaning the car, that's how I got the blood on my clothing. I guess people can roll with that. But again, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Thomas Beaver, who is the forensic pathologist, took the stand and I watched his testimony. It was pretty tough to listen to because he described how Samantha had suffered around 120 stab wounds. He said he took 170 pictures and 13 x-rays and he was looking for evidence of what kind of weapon was used. He was looking for pieces of knife that may have been broken off or lodged in the body. And we won't go through all this, but his testimony, I can only imagine what the family felt listening to it because this is someone who was being attacked while they were trying to get away, but they were stuck in the back of this car. So you can imagine the damage was all over the place. And the sad thing was, is there was so much blood, they couldn't tell the original color of her shirt without having looked back at any kind of pictures from the night before. Most of her wounds were on the right side of her body. Some were defensive, especially in her hands. And some of these injuries indicated hemorrhaging, meaning she was alive when she got them. Now they're going to play footage from all of those security cameras. The ones around five points showing this black Chevy Impala driving around. They're going to show video footage from Wendy's when he pulled up. They're going to show the uh, body cam footage of Nathaniel's arrest after the abduction. Uh, and they're going to put a body cam surveillance video analyst on the stand to walk the jury through each one of these bits of footage and explain them in detail. And it's around 1.40 a.m. to 2 a.m. where you see this black Impala driving around the Five Points area making U-turns and pulling up to the curbs, looking for someone to get in. Now, when that black Impala pulled up to her, didn't it hop the, the curb a little bit? Yeah. He was like really excited to pull up in front of Samantha so much that he's not even, you know, not even watching for the curbs. The defense tries to say, can you identify Nathaniel Rowland in any of these videos involving this black Impala? And of course, this witness says that they cannot, Justin Martin. He says, I, I can't identify him in the videos. But again, it's his car. So this goes to the jury after closing arguments from the prosecution and the defense. How long do the jurors deliberate for? Just over an hour. One hour of deliberation, which is pretty quick. This is July 27th, and the charges that they find him guilty of are murder, kidnapping, and possession of a weapon during a violent crime. I think this was pretty open and shut. I think the prosecution put on 
a fabulous trial to really connect the dots for the jury here, leaving no doubt of this man's guilt. Because the judge will make a statement a little later, and I'll read that because I think the judge kind of nails it. Judge Clifton Newman. Yeah. So did you watch the family of Samantha Josephson making statements? Yeah. These victim impact statements were pretty powerful. It was it was probably tough to listen to, but yeah, they, I think they did an amazing job expressing the love for their daughter, their sister, and of course, the anger they have with why she died and who did it. Nathaniel's mother tries to make a statement. She tries to claim that her son is innocent and Judge Clifton Newman shuts her down. He doesn't let her speak. He just says, I'm I'm not here to listen to claims of innocence. Nathaniel's mother says she didn't raise him that way, but uh, the judge won't let her speak. This is a very interesting part because it does feel like there's more than enough evidence here to say that Nathaniel Rowland is actually guilty of this crime, never mind the fact that he was found guilty. And so when I hear his mother speaking like this, to me, it's complete denial. It's something that she just cannot accept because to accept it, it would shake her world to the core. So I I don't want it to seem like these are awful people. They're having to deal with stuff too, just like Uh Samantha's family is. The only difference is they've lost Samantha forever. She had to die a horrible death. And so while it's tough hearing what Roland's family has to go through, well, they still have him. I mean, he's going to be locked up, but he's still around. And they give. Nathaniel a chance to speak. I guess that's just part of protocol. Um, But uh, he says he knows he's innocent, but I guess what I know and what I think doesn't matter. I wish the state would have done more in finding who the actual person was claiming somebody stole his car and went and committed this crime. And uh, the judge lets him speak, but uh, the judge will end up giving his own statement during sentencing, which I think is, is really brilliant. They didn't go for the death penalty though, Aaron. They, they took that off the table. And do you, why do you think they, they didn't go for that? Well, I, I know that death penalty cases are their own kind of problems. You know, I would say this is a way to make sure that they get Nathaniel Rowland locked up. I don't see any way he's going to be released. If you had made it a death penalty case, it just gives him and his team more ammo, um, more ways to fight this. And like I said, some might say, well, you know, there's no proof that he was the one in the car. They didn't ID him in the car. But again, we can build a case as the state did and say it was his car, his phone, his cleaning of the car, the testimony of his girlfriend, the items found at her place. There's too much here. And just even thinking about the time where he said he threw away her visor because it had blood on it. I I don't know of anybody who's going to want to uh, fight for this guy. Because if you're that heartless, you're probably the one that did all this. And we don't need footage of you getting in and out of that car to tell us it was you. There's too much here circumstantially. The judge before sentencing says, I'm going to paraphrase this a little, but he says, during my time on the bench, I presided over many murder trials. 
and they typically involve shootings. He talks about you know how c- crime is on the rise, um, and he says he goes most people that are accused of murder and convicted murder. This is the first time I've presided over a case where the victim was stabbed 120 times. The last case I participated in was where a victim was stabbed and tortured. It resulted in the jury imposing the death penalty. He goes on to say, your mother tells me that you're a good child. And when I hear these circumstances, I hear a lot of mothers tell me what a good child their child is. And quite often, I have to unfortunately tell these mothers and fathers that your child was a good child, but that's when they were a child. And my heart goes out to the Roland family, as well as the Josephson family. He goes on to say, the amount of belief your parents have in your innocence is the amount of belief I have in your guilt. He's like, there's no way anyone could believe that you fell asleep during the exact time of this abduction and murder, that someone would have to steal your car, steal your car keys, kill Samantha with your tool, and then bury her in your home territory, and then go back to an ATM, and then you try to sell the phone and all the blood. He's like, the evidence is so substantial in this case. And that your phone and her phone went all the same places. And he talks about the cell phone towers that it pinged off of. And he talks about how one of those cell phone towers was right next to his chambers and how close to home this hits. He goes on to say that the only penalty that's appropriate here is life in prison. It's the only one but it will never satisfy the families. I I think he nails it, Aaron, because he says your child was good when they were a child. And he says that there is no other explanation here with the insurmountable evidence against him. I think anyone should go out and watch his full statement during sentencing because it's, um, he just, uh, is very calm, even fair. And he's not going to, take any BS from the accused or the mother claiming his innocence. He has a fairly reserved demeanor, but you can also tell that he's very invested in these trials that he's a part of, Judge Clifton Newman. He's also the same judge that presided over the Murdoch trial. So if, if you watch the Murdoch trial, he's the one. And if you watch his statements from that trial, he's brilliant there too. Exactly. He's obviously a very, very good judge.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Generation Y podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus and the wondery app or on apple podcasts